Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And mine is Julie Douglas. Julie, tell me this. Uh, you uh, and your husband use an iPhone, do you not, to traverse the world around you? You depend on its maps? Affirmative, Mr. Yes. Lamb, we do. So you... Like uh, like like my household, we're probably uh, somewhat distraught when the maps changed all of a sudden. We were recording this early October 2012, mm-hmm. just a week or two ago. Everyone updated their iOS, and suddenly Google Maps were no more on the phone. It was Apple Maps instead, and there were some uh, there was some some ensuing confusion. Yeah, bridges melting. <laughs> Melting bridges. Uh, the system that we were used to was no longer in play, and suddenly we were unable to simply drive a mile from our house <laughs> to uh, to a location that we'd been to before. Nobody showed up at work. Yeah, they didn't know how to get here anymore because uh, the maps weren't working. I think that all of this points to the fact that that maps are totally underrated and people don't realize how important they are and actually how difficult it is to get a good system in place. And I mean, speaking of systems. Remember what it was like before all this? I mean, by the time I was actively driving to places I'd never been to before, I think I had, uh, what was the MapQuest at my disposal, which even MapQuest was really con- confusing compared no, to the yeah. standards. Yeah, you had your printout of MapQuest and then the sun's direction, and you were on yeah. your own. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I'd still get lost. And then we eventually had, you know, Google Maps was an improvement as far as I'm concerned, as far as most people were concerned. And then, then came the more affordable GPS devices. And we were able to to navigate more without thinking about it. Well, and uh, we have seen actually instances where people absolutely did not even think about it, and yes. um, this was made fun of in the TV episode, The oh, Office. The office yeah. But Michael Scott, yeah, he drives into the lake because it's not on the map. On the map, the GPS it says that you know the road keeps going, and it's a joke. But I think this has actually happened to some people. What was uh, amazing when I, when I was looking at uh, into our history with maps and, and sort of comparing our modern understanding of maps and use of these highly technological maps and comparing that to models of the past, I found these photo auto guides from around 1905 really interesting. Basically, if if I was to go back in time to 1905 mm-hmm. and then I had access to a car... And, and you I, were touring the countryside. And I was touring the country and I was like, whoa, my GPS doesn't work. I brought it back. <laughs> I bothered to bring it back with me, but it has no satellites to play off of, mm-hmm. so it's just sitting there without a signal. What should I do? What if, what would it be like then if I were to try and replicate the GPS driving experience using early 20th century technology, <laughs> or not even technology, but just printing abilities and photography abilities? You would end up with the photo auto guide, uh, which was basically a detailed set of directions for it to drive from one place to another. That would include photographs of intersections, mm-hmm. detailed uh, instructions about how to navigate. In, in a way, turn by turn, right? Turn by turn, yeah. So kind of a combo, uh, an early version of both the MapQuest printout of directions mm-hmm. and a detailed GPS POV of where you are and where you're going. But also a travel guide of sorts, too, yes, right? Yes. Because they're talking about landmarks and about the different things that you will encounter on the way. So as humans, we need maps. And that's basically what we're talking about in this this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, about our relationship with maps from its early goings and on into the future, and just how tied we are to them. We may not think about them all the time, 
you know, I, you may not think about the map until you're having to navigate somewhere that you haven't been to before mm-hmm. or you don't really remember the, the instructions or you're having to share these instructions, these directions with someone else. But the map is always there in the mind. Like, it's, it's really part of our neural architecture at a, at a very deep and important level. But at one point, you could argue that it wasn't there, right? Because mm-hmm. we didn't have, uh, even though, you know, humans have been nomadic for some time, uh, we didn't necessarily have a sense of place beyond the, say, like, I don't know, two-mile radius that you yeah. might forage in. Well, so there's some arguments about whether or not there have been true maps made at those times and or, or whether or not those were just sort of more like, you know, turn right at the boulder. Um, and when we started to make maps in earnest as humans. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that you said place. It's really important to think about place, and certainly the difference between place and space. I was reading in this book, uh, To Take Place, uh, Toward Theory and Ritual by Jonathan Z. Smith, which is one of my old uh, college religious studies books, but, but like really deep uh, stuff about like the origins of, of ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a, a part where they talk about the use of maps, and he, uh, he quotes um, geographer uh, Yi Fu Tuan, who says this, Space is more abstract than place. What begins as undifferentiated space becomes place as we get to know it better and endow it with value. If we think of space as that which allows movement, then place is pause. Each pause in movement makes it possible for location to be transformed into place. So this is a sense of, in a sense, it's like bringing order out of chaos. You're bringing place out of space. Well, I like this idea of movement, too, because I think of that in those terms of, like, space as being a frontier. Yeah. Something you're going to explore. Yeah. And Immanuel Kant uh, also, um, he, he argued that geography was the study of knowledge in a location, while history is the study of knowledge in time. Hmm. Okay. So it comes down to, you know, it's, it's core to our perception of reality in the world around us, this, this map of where we are in space, of this place that we inhabit that is full of, of things that have value and meaning. Well, and that's what I think is so intriguing about maps is that it tries to do double duty. It tries to take space, place, and time and combine it all on, on one surface, right? Um, right. One sort of understanding. Um, it is thought that the oldest known maps are preserved, um, well, not that they're preserved, but that they actually go back to 2300 BC, and then they are preserved on Babylonian clay tablets from mm-hmm. that time. And in ancient Greece, where cartography was considerably advanced, the concept of a spherical Earth was well known among Greek philosophers by the time of Aristotle. So we're talking about 350 BC. So this idea that you're going to map that space has been around, and we know that humans have tried to harness it. Um, it's certainly one of those things that if someone says, oh, what was the first map? There's no way of knowing because that's something yeah. that really vanishes into the, the murk of, of history. It's probably some you know some dude with a stick in the dust or something. You know, it's it's not something that's going to survive. And then right, we, even if it is on paper, then right. it's not going to survive. And then a lot of the things we end up keeping are that, that we may think we may interpret them as maps. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the case. In our previous podcast, we talked about um, allegorical maps, maps of things that are not real, and you really get into a weird area with old maps where you have to judge. All right, to what extent is this a map of anything? In physical reality, to what extent is this a a map of that's more co- uh, cosmological in its sense? Mm-hmm. Does it have to do with religious matters? Is it is it have to do with uh, with ritual, or is it just merely some sort of illustrative art? 
Well, and to what extent is it our brains interpreting something that isn't a map? Yeah. Uh, but looking at patterns, and we'll talk more yeah, about is it that. Yeah, is it a pictogram? Is it a religious artifact? Mm-hmm. Is it just a landscape? Yeah, and ascribing our own meaning to it. Yeah. I did want to point out that Greek and Roman cartography reached a culmination um, with Claudius Ptolemius, and this was in AD, uh, around AD 85. And his world map depicted the old world from about 60 degrees north to 30 degrees latitude uh, south. And his writing was called Guide to Geography, and it was really the authoritative reference uh, to maps and world geography until the Renaissance. So that's quite a bit of chunk of time there. Um, And then, of course, you can also fast forward to about uh, 1154 when an Arab geographer named Muhammad al-Darisi produced his atlas. And that actually was used quite a bit as well. he incorporated the knowledge of Africa, Indian Ocean, and the Far East, uh, ga- gathered by Arab merchants. And this is something that we're going to see repeating over and over in history and map making is this idea that maps really came about as a sort of crowdsourcing. Everybody yeah. else's knowledge dumped into this one document to say, okay, this is what my experience was in this landscape. And you had to trust that you had people who actually were capable of, of contributing to the, the dialogue and weren't just going to be like, uh, what he said. I don't, I'm just going to go along with what this previous person right. said. And Because then, then you end up keeping not only uh, this previous uh, cartographer's successes, but also his uh, inaccuracies. And we do see huge inaccuracies with uh, maps, even today. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think about these trade routes, um, you know, either by, by foot or by horse or camel, um, then you get to you know well established points of reference, and you can begin to make a mental uh, mapping of the landscape. But this is one of those uh, outrageous overstatements of the obvious, which is sometimes necessary in dealing with mind blowing content, because you have to actually step back and and think about something that you already knew, and that is that until very recently, we were not able to look down at the earth from above and see right. that is the shape of that island, that is the shape of that peninsula, that is the uh, manner in which that river cuts across the continent. This is all, That is all really new technology, really new uh, information to have. And prior to that, uh, you had to, uh, to, to deal with it all based on observation, mm-hmm. mathematics, and slowly piece together this topside vision of the world that was not possible. Yeah, it's true. 17th and 18th centuries really ushered in mathematics and technology. Clock making made it possible for travelers to determine their long or longitude accurately. It made it much more easier to make more accurate maps. Uh, for instance, using degrees, minutes, and seconds, meridians measure how far east or west a location is from the prime meridian, and parallels measure how far north or south a location is from the equator. So if you didn't have all this information mapped out in the first place, then it would be very difficult to even try to figure out that journey, let alone how long it would take. But thankfully, we had that sort of technology coming online in the form of magnetic compasses, telescopes, and sextants, uh, which are these instruments that really measure the angle between two visible objects. So, but as you say, it wasn't really until we could get above and confirm and really check <laughs> what our we, work. Yeah. yeah, and actually, John John Glenn um, said that when he first went up and he saw he was you know going he was traveling away from Earth and he looked down and he saw the state of Florida. He was really impressed because he thought, "Wow, our, our map making is pretty accurate because that is a really great representation of Florida. Uh, we're not so far off." 
So, yeah, we're talking about the ability to obtain aerial photography, mm-hmm. which, of course, one has to have the technology to at least send up a balloon um, or or climb something very high, I guess, in a very s- simple, limited, not really aerial form of photography. And, of course, you need photography to do that as well. It helps. It helps a lot. And we actually had the technology of aerial photography back in 1858, mm-hmm. but it's kind of hard to believe that it wasn't until after World War One that we began to really use it in earnest um, it was used in reconnaissance missions. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so prior to that, we there was a huge chunks of the world that were really uncharted because uh, we didn't have the aerial photography. And then, of course, you had satellites come online. And in the beginning, uh, the U.S. military satellites were equipped with high-res cameras for the purpose of aerial photography, but they had no way to develop the film or transmit the images. Uh-huh. And we take that so for granted right <laughs> yeah, now, right? Yeah. You think about... Um, you know, Mars Curiosity beaming back these images. Um, but what they would do is the these early satellites would drop film packets into the atmosphere, and these were outfitted with parachutes, which is kind of cute to think about. Um, and then they were retrieved midair by military, military transport planes. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick little break here, and when we come back, we're going to deal with a really ancient, possibly a map, maybe not a map. You'll find out when we discuss it, and also our unstoppable need to see maps in the world around us. And there's an actual term for this, cartokeikothes. All right, we're back. And before we get really hardcore back into maps, let's talk a little bit about apophenia. Okay. We've talked about this before. It is the spontaneous perception of connections and meaningfulness of unrelated phenomena. Yeah. Yeah. The coin was, uh, the, the coin, the term was coined by Kay Conrad in 1958. And neurologist Peter Brueger studied apophenia in patients who had psychotic episodes. And he noticed that they were sh- they were finding meaning in random aspects of their lives. And his research actually indicates that high levels of dopamine affect the propensity to find meaning. In other words, when you find a pattern, you get a little ding-ding from dopamine. Your reward system of your brain lights up a bit. So it would make sense that, uh, first, that the human brain is hardwired to try to find patterns. It's really important in trying to survive. And, two, that it would get rewarded for that. Yeah. So if you have enough dopamine in your system, you listen to that Led Zeppelin song and you finally figure out what he was talking about, man. <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, it's it's essentially a, a type one error in which we are, you're seeing patterns that aren't necessarily there. Mm-hmm. It's part of everything from our ability to see a smiley face where there isn't one to see, you know, because we can look at anything with even the, the vaguest human face mm-hmm. uh, pattern in it and we, we sort of personify it. And uh, so, so there's a little bit of it going on there, but all, but in its more extreme cases, it's uh, it plays into conspiracy theories, it plays into religious experience, paranormal experience. Mm-hmm. It's just drawing all these connections that aren't there, where suddenly you realize that, whoa, this uh, this thing that happened with my car, there's something wrong with the engine, and it's totally because of the government, and they're probably watching me through my TV. Meanwhile, you've got a little dopamine release for making that connection, right? Yeah. So it's not surprising that there would be a little something called cartokeikothes, right? Which is this uncontrollable urge to see maps where there are none. Yeah, which is uh, which is pretty 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 phenomenal. I mean, on one level, we mentioned that, and I imagine a lot of you are thinking, "Wow, well, when when would one have the opportunity to make that <laughs> mistake?" Because uh, you know, I'm thinking about just my daily life. How many times do I encounter something that's not a map that I could interpret as a map? 
Like maybe if I found like a scrap of paper and I was wondering if it was a treasure map, you know? Yeah. I just uh, I I don't see this being a big deal for the average person. No, and I don't think it is. I think it's for people who are map minded. Yes. And and tend to gravitate toward maps. And, and particularly archaeologists and uh, anthropologists. We, looking back in human history, finding these relics. And in many cases, it may just be some scratches on a, on a wall, an ancient cave site, and then trying to figure out what what was this ancient person whose mind I can barely comprehend, if if at all comprehend, mm-hmm. what were they thinking when they did this? Well, and it seems benign until you start to consider that if you if you tend to see maps where there are not, then if someone is an archaeologist and they're looking at something, they could perhaps uh, perceive something that is not there and in doing so really warp our understanding of that culture of that period of time and history yeah um, and I'm thinking about something called the Catahoyuk map it was first brought to our attention in a 1964 article entitled excavations at Catahoyuk and this is by James Millart uh, who at the time recognized it as a city plan. Yes. Now the original scratch, the, the original scratches, the original um, markings do kind of look like scratches on a wall. Not yes. to not to discredit yeah. the work of an ancient people, but it hadn't really <laughs> survived all that well. It's 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 kind of abstract. But uh, the popularized version of this though is a sketch that he did of it. It's the sketch that's the yeah, problem. Yeah, because the sketch really plays into his interpretation of it. So you see in his sketch what really looks like a laid out city like grid work of, of, a, of a city, mm-hmm. and then above it, an erupting volcano. Right. And um, now he is saying that this uh, this sort of Neolithic map dates back to 1600 B.C., and that it would have been one of the first maps. Now, that's really important because right. all of a sudden you have pinned in time when man started to really make maps um, or, you know, the surrounding areas. Yeah, or, or certainly just, you know, you have one of the earliest examples of it, and that's, that's amazing because we can actually put a date on what's right, the yeah. earliest known map. You're right. That's more accurate yeah. that you could actually just put a date to it rather than trying to figure out when we started to make maps. And then, you know, you start to think, okay, well, that's older than any writing system, you know, 4,000 years ago and uh, older than the oldest known alph- alphabetical uh, writing system. And this really begins to shape this story about humans. Um, the problem is, as you say, is that this was a picture that he made of a cave painting. Right. And so it's it's just full of I guess you could say his uh, impression of what he thought it was. Yeah, and like like I said earlier too, even if you're dealing with an actual map uh, from an ancient culture, you you have to really navigate that gray area of to what extent is this just a person trying to figure out what their place is in the surrounding space. At what to what point is this a cosmological or religious work? To what mm-hmm. extent is it? Uh, are they just seeing things in the world around them and making pictures of them? You, you get into that gray area of what a map is to an ancient people. Well, certainly to an yeah. unlanguaged people. That's yeah. even even uh, more difficult to, to fathom. Well, archaeologist uh, Stephanie Meese is the person who actually illuminated this problem because she said, first of all, it's been taken out of context. Let's go and look at this cave painting in the context with other cave paintings and see what we find. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, when she examined it, she said, hmm, okay, now in the context I can see that this volcano is spotted like a leopard skin. And if you look at it, it's not really a volcano. It's kind of two peaks. One peak is larger than the other. Now I'm going to compare it against this other cave painting in which they have stretched out tiger skins. 
right. uh, or excuse me, leopard skins. And you begin to see that this volcano, it's really funny. When you first look at it, you do see a volcano. But when you see her explanation, you see that it is a stretched out then leopard you're, yeah, skin. Yeah, you're like, that's a leopard skin. It's totally a leopard skin. Yeah, it's not a volcano. And these other little scratches aren't, you know, necessarily the houses in that town or the huts. It reminds me of the episode of Arrested Development where um, there's the cell phone picture that they think is showing WMDs. But Tobias just took a picture of himself by accident in the bathtub. You know. Well, it's like uh, Ken Jennings in Maphead looks at, um, at Khrushchev's forehead and sees a country. I think it's Thailand or something yeah. because he can't help it. You yeah, know? and he's drawing the connections, too, in that book between the shapes of various states and the shapes of other countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you, you can't help but make those uh, connections in your mind. All right. So since we're doing some time traveling, let's go forward into the way, way future, which is now. Um, and think about what maps mean to us today, particularly with the sort of technology that we have. Are, you know, are we capable of making a similar mistake in misinterpreting information and layering information that we have now? Well, if a future society or alien culture comes back and looks at our maps now, they're probably, A, they're going to be a little confused by all the maps that we have of things that are not actually real, which <laughs> we discussed in our previous podcast. They're going to be like, whoa, they have all these maps of hell, like tons of them. And and then there are all these these other planets, I guess. There's a fun place called Middle Earth that doesn't really <laughs> right, match right, up with yeah. anything on the planet. There's they had hobbits. They had hobbits, but we don't thing. see any in the yeah. uh, in the skeletal record. So so again, on one level, there's the just the the, the complexity of of our map obsession mm-hmm. that we have maps of things that aren't real. We have maps that that, that serve a purpose other than navigating the physical world. But then our modern-day maps are rather unique in that they certainly something on your anything you're going to have on your smartphone, you're dealing with a, a real-time map. You're dealing with a map that not only charts the streets mm-hmm. in your world, but also the traffic on those streets, uh, how they're affected by weather, how they're affected by a uh, public transportation system. So you have a lot of real-time data informing the shape of that map. Yeah, think about Google Earth. It uses satellites, planes, hot air balloons. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, camera-equipped kites and cars to capture their images and then create this this virtual Earth for us. And then you, it has the keyhole technology, um, which actually, before Google acquired it, I gave that program to my dad because he's an early adopter of technology, and that was like the one thing I knew he didn't have. So that gave them the ability to swoop in and out, um, you know, with 2D graphics and try to make it even more accurate representation. Um, The goal of Google is to have a centimeter per pixel imagery for the entirety of the globe. So every square centimeter is its own pixel on the map. Wow. So now that's overlaid with real-time data like traffic and weather and also crowdsourcing photos, right? You can overlay virtually anything on top of that. And you begin to wonder, is this a more accurate picture of, of humanity in the places that we live? Or is it still – could there be a bias in this? Because some people will say that, that maps are biased in ways depending on the sort of information that you share. Yes, and uh- – the interesting thing, too, about going forward and thinking about the, the information that's shared in a map, we're talking about engaging the map with even more and more information. We've talked in the past about the Living Earth Simulator, mm-hmm. this idea that we'll essentially create a simulated model of the Earth. Now, it's it's not necessarily, in its, at least in its short-term um, vision, it's we're not talking about a virtual Earth 
in which you could jack into and see, uh, you know, what the queen is doing tomorrow and how it's affecting Wall Street, that kind of thing. But you'd be able to take a virtual world, uh, cue in the data that is essential to your problem, Mm -hmm. such as, say, I don't know, how Hollywood blockbusters affect the global seafood market. You would put in the Hollywood data, yeah. you'd put in the seafood data, you'd put in maybe a few other data sets that play between those, and then you would let it roll like a weather model and see what the forecast is for tomorrow or the day after in terms of fish and Hollywood movies. So I think what we're talking about is the capability to have a mapping system that can tell you what's going on in the here and now, but can also extrapolate what's going on a year from now, 30 days, 10 years predicated on these models for the living earth simulator that at least in the program in its present form right Mm -hmm. and then you think about google's liquid galaxy which is this cluster of computers running google earth to create a really immersive effect and you begin to get this picture of of the future where you would never have to leave your home to have pretty immersive experiences right like you can even go out into the galaxy we talked about um about the internet, interstellar internet, mm-hmm. and how we're trying to connect our solar system and trying to get, uh, trying to figure out ways that we'll be connected. Think about what that means in terms of the images that we're getting from Mars Curiosity and that sort of database that we're building up. Yeah, the map becomes more and more complex. Uh, ideally, it is still providing a simplified model or view of the world to the user. But the map itself, the, the technology and the information in it just swells and swells. Mm-hmm. I can't help but be reminded of Jorge Luis Borges' uh, story on exactitude in science, in which uh, an, an empire that's obsessed with cartography creates a map of the empire that is uh, that is one-to-one scale. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's the, the map is the size of the thing that it's mapping, and it just lays over <laughs> the earth, um, which <laughs> which is an idea that, uh, that, that Borges took from... Uh, or he adapted from uh, Lewis Carroll, I believe. That's right, yeah. With original. Bruno and something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so Borges is all, was always up for some sort of mind-twisting, uh, magical, realistic idea, and so he played with that in his short story, and it was pretty, pretty thought-provoking. Silly, but thought-provoking, you know? Well, and, and certainly applicable to a, a virtual map world. Mm-hmm. Like, at what point does it become the equal of the thing it's mapping in terms of its complexity. Well, and what other frontiers are we mapping? Again, going back to Mars Curiosity, and just in September, they um, discovered an area where they think there was water, Mm -hmm. and uh, the rocks are in this large canyon, and NASA's team named this rock outcrop um, Hota, I believe that's the, the way to pronounce it, after Canada's Hota Lake. So, I mean, already we're beginning to, to take our history and propel it forward into these uncharted areas. Oh, and then, of course, we get into the area of augmented reality. Now, right. um, I believe it was Umberto Eco in one of his uh, essays. And Umberto Eco writes about everything uh, from comic books to uh, to obscure things in medieval uh, literature. Gr- great writer. But he wrote a, a piece where he was talking about uh, Borges' uh, story on exactitude in science. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about making the, the map um, see-through. It would be okay, so that you could you could lay it out over the thing that it's mapping. And you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't say something like, "Oh, where's the park? I can't see the park for the map of the park that's mm-hmm. on top of it." To a certain extent, augmented reality is exactly that: the idea of putting on a, a pair of enhanced augmented reality glasses that then overlay the world around us with information about that world. It becomes a see-through, one-to-one map of the world that we live in. 
Yeah, we've already seen the technology in play with surfaces, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting to, to imagine walking down the street with, you know, contacts that are superimposing information and map coordinates at the same time. You know, is this a... I mean, I guess this is just another version of the map, right? I mean, you yeah. can kind of awfulize about it and be a Cassandra about it, but uh, this is the reality of living at a different time in the world when map t- technology is now this instead of your Rand McNally tattered in, in your back pocket. Yeah, maps and mazes. There you go. All right, let's call over the robot then, and we'll do a quick listener email. All right, we heard from Adam. And Adam is, of course, the chief happiness officer that we've heard about before. He mm-hmm. has a website, happinessplunge.com, uh, as well as crazyhairfundraiser.com. And uh, he wrote into us in response to our bat episodes. He says, hey, guys, great timing on the podcast. I was just on the island of Samal in the Philippines working with the community fighting to keep its land from being usurped by business interests to make resorts. Anyway, I stayed just a short walk away from the Guinness record biggest colony um, of Jeffrey Rosé's fruit bats in the world. There are approximately 1.8 million there. Uh, I had never seen a bat before, so it was quite an experience. We went about uh, an hour before twilight, so the, the bats were active, flying around inside the cave and moving around uh, upside down. The noise the bats make is quite distinct. It's hard to describe, but maybe like a high-pitched mouse mixed with nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> it didn't smell at all, until one of the cave openings. Then the smell just kind of slapped me across the face and was horrible. I don't think their exit is quite as dramatic since there are several openings in the cave, uh, but it might be a sight to see when they all leave from the same area. Thanks for the great podcast and information about these amazing pollinating creatures. Attach or some pictures and videos for your enjoyment. Uh, and indeed, uh, he includes some really cool photos and video. I'm Right after this podcast, I guess I will go and put it on the Facebook. So by the time you yeah. listen to this, you will have maybe seen them already. Uh, but he took some really cool photographs. Like they're, they're beautiful creatures. Very uh, like the, uh, the the color of their their wing webbing versus the wings uh, limbs themselves. It's very distinct and, and really beautiful. I think in general bats are elegant. Yeah, I mean, that's probably not something people throw around when they talk about bats, but they are to me. Well, if you don't find bats beautiful, I I challenge that you have not really stopped to look at a bat. Yeah. 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 Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, if you have something to share with us about the beauty of bats, uh, or about our obsession with maps, about our ability to see maps in the world around us, let us know. I'd love to hear if any of you out there compulsively see maps where there are no maps. Um, I'm interested in in anyone's uh, personal experience with uh, these uh, new map technologies that we're dealing with, uh, whether it's just getting lost due to some uh, mishap with your uh, GPS or some thoughts on how your GPS and your augmented uh, technology actually informs your understanding and view of the world around you. Let us know about it. You can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Tumblr. We are stuff to blow your mind on both of those. And you can find us on Twitter where our handle is blow the mind. And you can send us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.